Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning, verses 1 to 10. Nehemiah chapter 8, 1 to 10. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding, upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate, from the morning until midday, before the men and the women, and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mathetiah, and Shema, and Aniah, and Uriah, and Hilkiah, and Maaseah on his right hand. And on his left hand, Padiah, Mishael, Melchiah, and Hashem, and Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. He blessed Yahweh Elohim. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah, Jamin. Akab, Shabbatai, Hodijah, Maaseah, Kalida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hannah, Peliah, and the Levites called the people, caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, or governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then said he unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Father, this morning we thank you for an interesting and compelling section of thy holy word, the record of a period of time in which after great difficulty, after great experience, that we could call dark and dank, that there was a moment of light, a moment of revival, a moment of restoration, as led by two of thy godly servants, Nehemiah and Ezra. As we return to the record of this moment in time, may we see in it a pattern for ourselves 
how it is that we can cooperate with thy great light so as to remain light in a dark place, joy in a world of sorrow, and continue to be what you would have us to be as your people, even in this hour. Thank you for the occasion. Ask your blessing upon your people in reception. For we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. It was back in 2008 that Michael Horton wrote an, an interesting book called Christless Christianity. He wrote of an alternative gospel that was surging in and among American churches. He said in 2008 that he did not believe in that moment that you could honestly describe the scene in American evangelicalism as Christless, but that he believed that we were well on our way to a brand of Christianity in the United States of America that was void of Christ. The Apostle Paul would call that another gospel, which is not a gospel, certainly not the gospel, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Horton wrote 14 years ago that he thought America was well on its way to a Christless brand of Christianity. That's pre-COVID. That's pre-assault in Ukraine. That's pre-some of the dilemmas that you and I are now hearing about and confronting day in and day out. That's before the leak from the Supreme Court, in which many in our nation believe that there's something better than life. I'm inclined to think that we have now pretty much arrived at the moment of American Christless Christianity. The average gospel-preaching local church is worldly. The average local church is wayward. The average local church is weak. And by no means do I plan to waste your time here this morning by cursing the present darkness. But once again, to point our hearts and our minds to the principles of biblical revival and gospel preaching power that remains available to us if we would, in fact, avail. Having completed our last verse-by-verse -verse study in the Gospel of John in January, we have been examining some key Old Testament passages to focus our hearts and minds at worship, even as we anticipate a new preaching gospel series in the book of Matthew starting next month. Last month, we had the joy of surveying some Old Testament texts of Scripture with resurrection hope. This month, we are particularly looking at Old Testament passages of Scripture for principles of revival and preaching power. Principles of revival and preaching power that are exposed in the pages of the Old Testament Scripture, even as we have it here in Nehemiah chapter 8. We begin with the only biblical and historical record of revival in all the Bible. Nehemiah chapter 8, that revival took place under the godly man Nehemiah and the godly priest Ezra. 
and it took place rather near to the close of the Old Testament era. Again, if you were to put the Bible books in chronological order in the Old Testament, Nehemiah would be one of the last. It's good to have that in mind as you think about the unique moment of revival that is recorded here in Nehemiah chapter 8. The broken down rubble and trash of Jerusalem as destroyed by the Babylonians had been sufficiently removed and the first phase of rebuilding the city wall was now complete. God's two men took the moment of opportunity to poise the people for spiritual renewal of heart towards God and revival of obedience under the law. It's interesting because a lot of people uh, that name Christ uh, talk about their desire for revival as if it's some kind of a blue goo thing that flows out of heaven every once in a while. When the truth of the matter is, revival is really a very simple concept. It has to do with a return of the people of God to the Word of God. It has to do with the people of God obeying God again uh, after a time of not obeying God uh, as a regular matter, of course. The record of events on the day of gathering instruct us and provide us a pattern to follow if we indeed are interested in this place uh, of uh, a sense of spiritual integrity and power uh, in the ebb and flow of our local church even as we continue to wait upon the Lord for his return. Many pastors have long appreciated this text as a pattern for pulpit ministry, especially because you have the very first biblical mention of a wooden pulpit as seen in verse 4. Ezra stood upon a pulpit of wood made for that purpose. Thought much about the pulpit? Have you thought much about where it is located in a church like ours? If you go to a lot of other churches, the pulpit But in a church like ours, an evangelical church, the pulpit is in the middle because the Bible is primary as the main thing that we do as a local congregation. But because of the fact that the pulpit was built for the purpose, uh, first biblical mention of a wooden pulpit, a lot of preachers see in this pattern of the scripture, in this portion of scripture, I should say, a pattern uh, uh, for uh, good, uh, godly uh, pulpit uh, ministry, and, uh, and that certainly is uh, a part of the text. I ask a question this morning, and I'm really going to be asking this question for the weeks of this particular month that remain. The question is, how might we best honor God and the truth of the gospel in a time when Christ is commonly moralized minimized and trivialized among local churches of all stripes. The answer that we're going to glean from Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning is that we must, like the Jews of old in Nehemiah's day, make a commitment to the scriptures, experience a renewed sense of sin thereby, and thirdly, confirm our spiritual strength in the Lord. Three things from Nehemiah 8 this morning. We must, like the Jews of Nehemiah's day, make a commitment to the scriptures. We must experience a renewed sense of sin 
as a result of that commitment to the scriptures. And thirdly, we must confirm our spiritual strength in the Lord. I'm offering you those three things as pathway toward revival and preaching power in our own day. Let's begin with, number one, the commitment that was made to the scriptures. Now, most of us in attendance here today would hold to the opinion that we, as a local church, are very much committed to the scriptures around here. And I just ask you to be patient and to evaluate your opinion in light of the scriptures that are before us in this text. As we survey the record, we can see that the preacher-priest, Ezra, participated and brought oversight to a number of things indicating the leadership's commitment to the word of God. Look back at verse 2, Nehemiah 8.2. And Ezra the priest brought the law. Ezra the leader brought the book of the law, verse 2. He didn't bring a fairy tale book. He didn't bring a, a children's book with a moral to the story. He brought the law of God. He brought the Bible. Furthermore, he not only brought it, but he, verse 5, opened it in the sight of all the people. He opened the book. He brought the book. He opened the book. Furthermore, he read the word of God publicly, verse 3, verse 8. Now, I'll tell you, you talk about one long scripture reading. Did you see what that said? Verse 3. Uh, and uh, he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from morning till midday. So we gathered at uh, 10, and uh, if uh, midday was approximately noon, that'd be a two-hour scripture reading. <laughs> and, uh, of course, it was longer than that because their morning would have started long before 10 o'clock. He read the word of God publicly, and that is one of the major features of the gathering of the people on this day. The commitment of the leader was to bring the Bible. The commitment of the leader was to read the Bible and not a small portion of it. And you see that in verses 3 and 8. Furthermore, he oversaw the explanation of the word of God to the people that were gathered. Verses 7 and 8. Please note in verse 8. So he read in the book of the law of God distinctly. The word distinctly means to distinguish things, to clarify things, to declare the parts of things. He read in the book of the law distinctly. He gave the sense. He gave the meaning. He gave the insight to the people. Uh, it wasn't just like he was reading abracadabra words and expecting the people to relate to them as if they were magic. No, he read the word of God with the honor and the reverence and the and the respect that it is due as a word from God to his people. And Ezra exercised himself to oversee the giving of the sense and to causing the people, still in verse 8, to understand the reading. Uh, the New Testament worship standard for all things is that we do what we do with understanding. That God has not called us to be involved in some kind of perfunctory ritual in which uh, we do things that nobody understands why we're doing it. We're not the Masonic Lodge. 
We're not into secrets. We're into the open truth of the gospel. And thereby, what we do, we do openly and publicly. And, and we want everybody to understand and respond to God in the preaching of the word. The leaders, including Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites, according to verse 9, taught the people. And Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people. They underscored their opportunity in that day as a holy day unto the Lord, a day of opportunity, a day to uh, set the heart, to set the mind, to set the life right before God in the moment of time in which he has granted us. Leadership in the local church must exercise diligence and discipline to ensure that all public gatherings are rightly focused upon the word of God. The scriptures must be brought. The scriptures must be opened up before the congregation with good explanation and sense to cause widespread understanding of the truths of God among the people that are gathered. The scriptures must be faithfully taught and the day of opportunity rightly framed as relational advancement before God. Godly leaders insist upon the gatherings of the local flock where scriptures are primary in focus and response. As a local church, you should never take for granted You should never presume upon leaders bringing the word of God. Many of you know that last week I was on vacation, and if I were to come this morning and say, well, guess what? I, uh, I forgot my Bible. I left it in a motel room in Ohio. I wasn't even in a motel room in Ohio, but if I said that, and I came this morning to preach to you, and I didn't even have a copy of the Word of God with me when I came, uh, you would rightly shake your head and say, what is wrong with that old codger? You expect me to bring the Bible, and I'm happy to do it. And I have a B.A., a bad attitude towards all those pastors that don't bring the Bible. Because after all, when God's people gather, it's about the scriptures. It's about hearing from God. But you must not presume upon leaders that have a commitment to the scriptures to make it a part and parcel of everything that the local church does. None of us know the future or how long it will be till the Lord tarries. But if the Lord tarries, I'll tell you this. It will not be easy for churches like this to find their next pastor. It hasn't been for quite a while, but it won't be easy. Because the number of men that are committed to the B-I-B-L-E, the number of men that see their focus in life as studying the scriptures and teaching the scriptures, of seeing things in the scriptures and savoring things in the scriptures and showing things in the scriptures, that number of men in America is dwindling fast. And you better get your own expectation high as to what you expect of your pastor and your deacons. That they be men of the word. That they be men of the Bible. 
that they be men that have the same kind of commitment that you see here in Ezra and Nehemiah and other men of the leadership team back in that particular day and time. Believe me, this high and holy public work in the scriptures is not easy to maintain, even in our own day. All the modern trends lean towards people-centered activity and engagement of lesser things. The most celebrated leaders in local churches today are not of the stripe of Nehemiah and Ezra. Godly leaders must insist upon bringing, sharing, explaining, and teaching the word of God in the gatherings of God's people. We need to have leaders that are committed to the word of God. That's only half of it. We need to have a congregation that is committed to the word of God. Please note then the complementary commitment to the scriptures as seen within the congregation. First of all, they gathered, verse 1, and all the people gathered themselves together. It's hard to preach to people who don't come. You ever notice? It's hard to have great singing with people that don't sing or aren't there. Have you noticed? Sure you have. The first thing you say about these people, bless their people and hearts, is that they gathered together. And they didn't just gather together. The scripture says they gathered together as one man. What does that mean? It means they're all looking for the same thing. They all have the same desire. They all have the same focus. They're not sitting back and thinking, oh, I wish it would be this way, and I wish it would be that way, and I wish we could do this, and I wish we could do that. And we could go here, and we could go there, and maybe we could do this, and maybe we could do that. No. They all came together, and they all came together as one man with a singularity of desire and purpose. That's a phenomenal statement to think about in light of the pattern of the day. And this is amazing. They asked, they asked, they asked their leaders for the word of God to be brought. Did you see that? And they spake unto Ezra the scribe, he's the leader, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. What did the people want? Better music. What did the people want? Air conditioning. What did the people want? An elevator to go up and down. What did the people want? A better parking lot. What did the people want? A better playground. What did the people want? They wanted and they asked for the word of God. And guess what? God made sure they got it. That desire in the heart of a congregation will not fail to be answered from on high. If it is the heart of the congregation. Verse 3 tells us the people were attentive to the word that was publicly read. Now I tell you, I just, just my normal physical realities these days set anywhere for more than 20 minutes and the eyes start to bat. I know about that. But uh, I suppose that's why the people didn't sit. They stood. You think that helped? help? You want to try that next Sunday? Try a stand for the whole hour service? Will that keep you alert? I can see right now the deacons have bailed on me already and not even got it to a congregational vote. We're not going to do that. But I'm just saying, just think about that. Just think about that. Think what they did to stay engaged. Because they knew there was nothing more important than hearing the law of God that had been given to them. In verse 5, the people demonstrated reverence 
for the scriptures by standing when Ezra opened the scroll before them. The people responded to the word with verbal affirmation. Verse 6 says, the people quoted or said in response, Amen, Amen. And all the people answered, Amen and Amen. Not just the family of Bistram, not just somebody over here, over there, but all the people responded in enthusiasm to the word of God as it was, as it was proclaimed and read. And then, of course, in addition to verbal affirmation, they were marked by humble worship before God. It goes on to say, with lifting up of their hands, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And so they asked for the scriptures. They showed due reverence to the scriptures. They responded to the scriptures verbally by saying, oh, that's true, that's true. Amen to that, amen to that. Amen to that. And then they worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. God's people attended the gathering. They were attended to the scriptures during the gathering, and they affirmed their responsiveness to God by lip and by life. Their commitment to God and his word was manifest or demonstrated in ways that were physical, emotional, and spiritual. A godly congregation of people will exercise themselves in complement to godly leadership with desire, focus, response to the word of God in times of public gathering. They will content themselves with God-centered ministry and pray for those charged with local church leadership. There is certainly such a thing as a bad pastor. And I'm sure we've all known some in our days. But there is also such a thing as a bad local church. And I'm sure as, as well, we've all known some of those. And if this pastor is not to move into the category that we would classify as bad, and if this church is not going to move into the category that you and I would honestly classify as bad, then I'm going to tell you something right now. We're going to have to exercise ourselves to stay on the side of good. We're going to have to work at it. We're going to have to pray about it. We're going to have to exercise ourselves towards those ends. Because the casual brand of Christianity that floated in the 1950s and the 1960s in America is long gone beloved. And the day will soon come if the Lord continues to tarry in which we will need to stand up and be counted or not at all. It's time to think, it's time to pray. It's time to evaluate what our actual commitment to the word of God in this place is actually like. If you or I were asked just off the cuff, what's the commitment of the First Baptist Church of Elto to the word of God? Why we all, in quick response, would say, it's great. It's great. Is it? Is it great, really? When you open your Bible and you evaluate the aspect of the Scriptures concerning what it is to be committed to the Word of God, 
and in a cooperative sense of energy and enthusiasm, rally around the scriptures and content our souls with God-centered ministry as opposed to the lust of people-centered ministry. If ever there was a day of opportunity, it's today for us to see what is indeed coming should the Lord tarry and prepare ourselves to having done all to stand. Having done all by the grace of God, we shall stand. I trust your heart will say amen to that, even though I didn't hear anything come out of your mouth. The second thing I would call your attention to concerning this pattern of revival in the Old Testament has to do with the evidence of the people's conviction of sin after hearing again the truth of the word of God. If you look at verse 9, Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Now, why in the world would people weep when they heard the truths of God's word read? Well, the answer is that God's word works like a mirror, helping people to see themselves as spiritually needy before a thrice holy God. The people wept when they heard the truth of the scriptures, realizing afresh and anew that they were less than they ought to be before God. This recorded response to the word of God faithfully presented remains for us. When we consider the truth of the scriptures, we have a sense in which we have indeed come short of the glory of God. God works by the Holy Spirit in the life of his saints through the scriptures. And in fact, the scriptures do for people what nothing else in all the world can do for people. Let me give you a brief review of seven things the Bible does that no other book on earth can do. Number one, scripture converts the mind and the heart. It changes the mind and the heart. It converts the soul. Scripture converts the mind and heart. By the scripture, the mind and heart are changed in perspective, changed in affection. The scriptures can do that for us. Secondly, the scriptures clarify. By the word of God, we know the things of God and know better the things that please God. The word of God clarifies life for us day in and day out. Number one, scripture converts. Number two, scripture clarifies. Number three, the word of God commands new actions on our behalf. When we read the word of God, we come to grip again with the reality of what it is exactly that God wants from us. The scripture commands those new actions By Scripture, we live in wisdom. 
and we live in righteousness because we follow the commands of the scriptures. The scripture converts, number one. The scripture clarifies, number two. The scripture commands, number three. The scripture corrects, number four. By scripture, our eyes are better fixed upon the Lord Jesus. And we are enabled to set our affections on things above. There's not a week, and for many of us, there's not a day that we don't need our perspective in affection for God to be refined. And the scriptures, of course, can do that. It can correct our way. That's number four. Number five, the scriptures commend us in regards to things pleasing to God. Number six, the scriptures comfort us concerning life here and now, concerning the realities of then and later. Oh, the blessing that comes to the weary. Oh, the blessing that comes to the sick. Oh, the blessing that comes to the grieving by the scriptures that are read. We must thereby be big on the Bible because the Bible does for us what no other book or thing can possibly do for us. And the last one really is the best one, and that is that the scriptures are the tool of God to present to us Christ. Without the scriptures, no Christ. Any sense of church, Without Christ is no church at all. Any sense of preaching, teaching, fellowshipping without Christ is no teaching, preaching, or fellowshipping at all. Our dynamic link to God is his word written and in our hands. And by this word, we gain an understanding of our own sense of perspective concerning the greatness of God and the sinfulness of man. You cannot read the Bible. You cannot study the Bible. You cannot hear the Bible preached and not come away realizing that God is great beyond description and that God would be totally righteous to just abandon you and me and never do another good thing for us ever. That we are deserving of nothing, and yet by his great love wherewith we are loved in Christ Jesus, we are made close to God through him. What a blessing. What a correction of attitude. Well, when the people of old heard the Bible preached, when they heard the the Bible explained, when they heard the Bible read, they all wept. They all wept for the knowledge of the fact that they had been so inconsistent and so lacking in response, righteous response to God. And they all wept. And that moment of the acknowledgement of sin and inconsistency then brings us to the third thing that really is a, a blessed thing to be sure. And that is the confirmation of the believer's strength. It's said first in verse 9, but it culminates in verse 10. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. 
For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry or grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The congregation of Israel's tender sorrow over sin and inconsistency led to a wonderful moment in which the leadership could remind them of the fact that their strength as God's people rested in their fellowship with God. The gladness and fellowship of Yahweh was the source of their true strength. Thus, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. And in case you miss it, he said, and again I say rejoice. He goes on to say that he is numbered among those who rejoice in the Lord and have no confidence in the flesh. Just like the old gospel song that we sing, when trusting the Lord and obeying the Lord come together before the Lord, we find are happy in Jesus. There's a joy that is possible and available and sustainable in the days of life regardless of earthly circumstance. And that is the joy in the Lord. God's people are strong when they take their joy and gladness in the Lord. Just think, just meditate a moment upon that statement. It's a powerful statement. Last statement, verse 10, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Strength is found in taking our joy in the Lord. God works so as to make his people a people of joy. Strong people are joyful people. Did you come joyful this morning? Did you come strong in the Lord? Are you strong in the Lord right now? Will you live strong this week in the Lord? Well, I would imagine that you could do what I could do, and that is you could name a a bazillion circumstances that are on the horizon of the mind this week uh, that would indeed rob you of your joy in the Lord. Or you can resolve in your soul that regardless of what comes, by the good hand of God, that you will indeed take your joy in the Lord. Joy in the Lord. Do you know anybody... Do you know anybody this morning that's happy with the government? (laughs) Do you know anybody? I don't know anybody that's happy with the government. But you and I, as the people of God, we can be happy in God. We can be happy in the Lord. Step one in congregational revival and return to ministry effectiveness involves opportunity with and response to the word of the living God. It takes a revived life to minister to a ruined world filled with rubbish. In the big picture of the pattern of Ezra and Nehemiah, 
the first thing that uh, those godly leaders did is that they removed the rubbish. And then the second thing that they did was they directed the people towards uh, the word of God. Just ask Ezra and Nehemiah how to do it. And you'll see it in the pages of the scripture, I believe, for every generation. By the return of God's people to the word of God, written and living, ministry experiences of joy and power can be known. As Jesus quoted Moses, we repeat here this morning for your benefit in our own. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Heavenly Father, we have in our very hands your word. In this hour, we've read it. In this hour, we've sung about it. In this hour, we've preached it. And now we humbly ask that the Spirit of God who gave this word, written in our hands, would work in our hearts so that we can honestly evaluate our own commitment to the Scriptures in this place. We are so thankful for the opportunity of this day. It too is a holy day as unto the Lord. We are thankful for the reminder that our strength lies in joy, the joy of you, joy in you. Our great God who never changes. But indeed, it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We begin to pray this Lord's Day morning for this month. That you would revive our hearts. And increase our power. As we do diligence to the word of God in our own lives. May by thy spirit the personal ramifications of that and the public ramifications of that be made clear in each and every mind. And for that we will praise you. In Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.